Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Celestial Podcast, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Joey Morgan. Today, I am here with uh, Lord Slar, uh, Dylan Heath, aka Lord Slar. Hello. My name's so important, I have to say it twice. Uh, yeah, apparently. Uh, I'm here with uh, uh, Briar Hardo 2, Brian Corgan. I just shut my pants, my boy! And Jacob Licklider. I, I'm the straight man here. I, I get oh, no humor. He's a nonce! <laughs> so, um, uh, if you didn't see my update video, uh, which just which should have just come out on New Year's Eve, um, I don't know exactly when I'm going to be putting this up, but point being, if you didn't see that, then this is the new podcast I'm starting up. This is the so, Celestial Podcast, my doctor. So Dr. we're Dr. talking about our expectations for resolution, right? Shut the <laughs> fuck up. It would have already aired by the time that this comes this out. Oh, right, well, can, can, shall I do a review of Resolution, then? No. I no. mean, okay, so what, what, it was pretty average, like every other Chibnall story. It was surprised it wasn't the Daleks back, and it was, in fact, uh, the Sea Devils instead. It was an interesting I thought it choice, was the Quarks. Especially no, no, the Sea Devils no, are, no, what, are teaming up with the Quarks. Shut up! <laughs> what do you think about the, the gay Sea Devils subplot, you know? I think it was an agenda <laughs> being forced upon us. <laughs> So, okay, we're talking about season one today. Uh, pretty much how this podcast is going to work um, is we are going to talk about the main, if there is like a main team of Doctor and Companions in whatever group of stories we're talking about, we'll talk about them first. Then we'll go over the stories one by one and talk about our rankings of the stories at the end. Uh, given if scores, we'll probably talk about scores at the end of each individual one, but then we'll be ranking the stories at the end of uh, the episode. So... Uh, today we're talking about season one. Uh, I'm going to put up a list on the screen right now of upcoming episodes. Um, two and three are off limits right now, but four, five, and six you will see on the screen right now. If you want to be a part of those people listening, I will leave my Twitter linked in the description uh, that you can private message me. I check my messages on there all the time if you would like to be a part of it, um, whatever you're involved in. Uh, just Of course, you have to have Skype uh, so, we could, so you could be a part of this. And... Uh, uh, yeah, we can get in touch. So, I guess let's begin uh, getting into this by, by talking about the TARDIS team of Season 1. The Doctor, Ian, Barbara, and Susan. What do we think of the Doctor? If anybody says he's not the best Doctor, I mean, should they even be in this Skype call? Is, is the real question. <laughs> well, oh, so I have to kick Brian and Jacob? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then we can just wank off over each other, you know. like. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we will feed off each other. Joe, I thought you liked Pertwee. Okay, well, yeah, but Dylan likes Troughton more. But here's the thing. At least Hartnell is, like, each of our second favorite Doctors. No, Hartnell's my favorite Doctor. Oh, that's changed. Oh, he never informed it's, it's, me. It's, it's changed for, like, a year, man. It's changed yeah, it's... ever since Fraser Hines shattered him. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't cope after that. Every time I see it, I get... Every time I see Tomb of the Sidemen, I get PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, who who would like to begin talking about the first Doctor in season one? I think we I should think let Dylan. Dylan do it. He's, he's right. the right, biggest well, so part we, believe. So we're confining it as season one, right? Yeah. Just yeah. season one. Yeah, well, what a brilliant character, you know? And I can get why some people can't necessarily get into him, especially people who are new to classic who kind of thing. Because he's a much rougher character. He's a much different character. And he's somebody who isn't really a hero, Although he does have his moments. And it's just nice to see the Doctor actually have a bit of more mystique, a bit more, uh, like, complex, a bit more of a complex nature to his character. Because usually he's just like, yeah, I'm the Doctor, I can do anything with my magic 
sonic screwdriver wand and save the day and that's what i do and it's like it's a bit more interesting when it's you know it's just some bastard going around you know kidnapping people because just why not <laughs> i'm explaining this really badly but i do have a point to make but i, I i'll just let somebody else go and i'll actually think about it first All i right. see where you're coming from like oh did you want to go brian yes okay feel fine. i think that's the worst i've ever explained something in my life <laughs> I, right, th- I think you got your point across though all right <laughs> all i can say is what a fucking bastard he is in this first season like <laughs> jesus christ he does it. so much that lands him in such deep shit and it's all his fault every time and it's <laughs> hilarious yeah, and just like the, there's such a gravitas to the way that Hartnell plays the character, I think because um because he starts off rather abrasive and he still is pretty abrasive by the end of the season, just a bit less. He's instead of just looking out for him and his granddaughter, now he's looking out uh, for two more people by the end of the season. Oh yeah, um, that's that's another uh, thing. They 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 develop him really well throughout the season. Like he starts off as this hard old man, and then towards the end, he's slowly becoming the the hero we all know and love mm-hmm. but he, he's just he's just so charming in the respect that uh you know he always lands himself in his own trouble but always manages to use his guile to get his way out of it and there's there's nothing more fun than that yeah watching, and, some, and, and, watching somebody do some stupid shit and get away with it yeah and and all while doing it you know he is forming really strong bonds with ian and barbara um, I think specifically to Edge of Destruction, you were saying he gets himself into his own shit, where like he thinks that Ian and Barbara have sabotaged the ship, and um, and by the end, like it's not just easily resolved, um, you know, but it does kind of bring him and specifically Barbara closer together. Uh, so yeah, and, and he's like I said, he's not entirely the hero by the end. He doesn't start like going out of his way to stop evil until like I would say Planet of Giants, Dalek Invasion of Earth. Uh, there's never really. Yeah, like there's not really a situation in this season where it isn't just him trying to get away from danger. Or get yeah. his friends away from danger. And, and if if I may, I think Hartnell has probably the most well-defined character arc. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, like, definitely. By the end of Sensorites, you see how much he he's essentially grown from this man who hates all outsiders to this man who has formed these really close friendships with three friends and can't stand the prospect that they still want to leave him. But is still a grumpy old bastard anyway. I don't know if you could describe his granddaughter as his friend. Particularly. I'm talking specifically about Ian and Barbara. And yeah. You said that. free. You said free. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being a pedant. I'll shut up. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but at the same time, even when he is emotionally infect, uh, affected by people leaving him, he still wants to hide behind his more rough exterior. I think one uh, of the best things about him is just how cheeky and obsessed with himself he gets. You know, when he's going, <laughs> you know, and just showing off. That that's It's something that not many other Doctors do, is uh, a lot of the other Doctors try to be more likable, I think, except for maybe some of the earlier classic ones. But I really enjoy that sound of Doctor, where he's just well, being abrasive, he's like just being a bastard, he's just showing off, because it's fun. Like in mm-hmm. that scene from the Daleks where he basically shuts down the power to the Dalek city and because he's too busy gloating over it, the Daleks catch him. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh and then like he's so confident like in Marco Polo that he can beat the con at his own game. And then he's and then he's just like so and then he's so defeated by the end he just keeps laughing and it's just it's 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 wonderful to watch because Bill Hartman <laughs> just 
is a yeah. phenomenal actor. Uh, yeah, just little moments that make up his entire character and uh, and just a really well-crafted writing staff behind him. Yeah, to really credit Hartnell, there's always a glint in his eye. And it's something oh, that yeah. really comes across in the performance and makes it so infinitely rewatchable, infinitely charming and lovable. Even when he is being his most dastardly self, there is still... There's there's something really fun to watch about him, like when he's about to to bash a caveman's he- head in with a rock. There's still a really funny moment between him and Ian where he tries to cover himself up, and he's like, "I was going to have him mark the the, the way to the TARDIS," and then he was going to. So yeah, uh, really great moments there. So um, uh, almost the exact opposite of a of a great, well crafted character. What do we think of Susan? <laughs> Oh, the problem of Susan. She probably excretes excretes more screams than she does shits. Okay, she is amazing (laughs) in in An Unearthly Child. No, she isn't. I think she is. At least in the first episode. In the first episode. And she's amazing. She she is great as a foil for the Doctor in The Daleks. And she has some really, really good stuff in The Sensorites. Beyond that, But outside of that, they were too busy... She sort of uh, falls into the trap of child character, of being this kind of a bit whiny in places, way too screamy. And I mean, yeah, they're perilous in perilous situations. Um, and like, honestly, her, her, the stuff she does in like the early bits of the Daleks, like the end of episode two, beginning of episode three, um, where she's running the TARDIS, that's great. But a lot of it is just kind of weak. And, and well, it kind think... of sucks because Caroline Ford is a really good actress and just she's weighed down by writers who just, I feel like, don't have anything to do with her as a character. And they don't know how to write kids. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing is, she's a character with a lot of potential and David Whittaker clearly know, knew what he was doing with her. But the problem is, a lot of the writers just seem to think, ah, this is the damsel character. And so while she's great in some stories, such as the Sensorite, such as the Daleks, uh, she's... Really terrible in stories like the Keys of Marinus. Uh, you know, it just depends on who's writing, really, whether she's yeah. done well or not, and how well they understand this character. Whether they'd be like, okay, this is an interesting alien with weird powers and bit different, uh, bit mysterious, or it just it just scream girl, it just scream girl. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't but isn't it kind of sad then that like the two stories that like really understood what they were trying to do with her character were written by writers who ne- who never wrote for the show again with Anthony Coburn and Peter R. Newman. Well, I mean, with Anthony Coburn, obviously he wrote the first ever episode and a lot of what he wrote was heavily edited and in collaboration with the main creators of the show. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, but Peter R. Newman, yes, you do have a point there, but he does seem to be quite a tactful writer, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But then again, I suppose he would have a point with Terry Nation because he wrote her really well in the Daleks, and yet in the Keys of Marinus, she's crap. I mean, might yeah. have something to do with the fact that he barely had any time to write the Keys of Marinus, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh yeah, this guy did the Daleks. He can write fucking Keys of Marinus. I, I still, like, you, but you just, you just can't forgive anyone for the cliffhanger uh, for the, uh, just before the screaming jungle, because that scream, man. So I love the Keys of Marinus, but that scream, I, I just can't deal with it. Oh my god, yeah. Alright, so here's how I describe my opinion on Susan. My opinion on Susan is basically my opinion on Yaz, except it's kind of worse because 
she does nothing but scream. <laughs> well, at least Susan has her good moments. Yeah, yeah. At, just le- at least Susan character. has potential. And yeah, yeah. Realize the big So. Anything else to add on Susan? No, it's, it's not that Yaz is a bad character, she just doesn't have a character. Whereas at least Susan does have a character, it's just not all the writers actually put it in. Fair. Alright, so since they're pretty much one entity, what do we think of Ian and Barbara? Actually, I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about Barbara separately, in that she, Barbara as a character actually really holds up as a strong female oh, character. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I actually, um, I had some relatives visiting for, for Christmas uh, this past week. And um, and they're Doctor Who fans, and they had never seen the Aztecs before. And I showed them the Aztecs. They're they're mostly familiar with New Who, and um, and they were like, "Wow, I pretty much like just from that one story, like Barbara more than almost every New Who companion." <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's fair because she's a really strong character. Like even, you know, people who try to draw the comparison of oh, it was written in the 1960s. It ever, all women were treated unfairly and." Barbara is a prime example of how absolutely untrue that is. Um, she yeah, really is... Again, it, it really depends on who's writing. And a lot of the people who wrote for Doctor Who were very progressive people. People who, you know, knew how to write properly. It, it weren't going to just like, oh, here's the woman character just being shit. You know, yeah. they're actually going to write good, strong characters. Because what Barbara is, she's, she's not perfect. She's not uh, full of herself. And she knows she's flawed. But she's a strong character, and she's all the more interesting for everything about her. And that's what really separates her from a lot of the new Who companions who are very full of themselves and are a bit, you know, smarmy, and it's just and are a bit portrayed as a bit too perfect. Whereas it's yeah. nice to see a proper character here, where it's a strong woman, but a strong woman who is an actual character who has flaws, who isn't, who feels like a regular human, and that's what Ian and Barbara do best, I think. Is they're really relatable, despite the fact that, you know, we're not uh, English teachers from 1960s London, but we can still relate to them just because they're such well-rounded, very human characters. Yeah. Like, the only thing that makes her really different is, like, say, in a historical story, she'll know much more about uh, about Marco Polo's passage and, and, of, and of the Aztecs and of the Reign of Terror. We may not know that, but also, this is a human, too. Like, this is someone who really... I don't want to. I want to avoid the word surrogate because it's used way too often when talking about companions in reference to the audience. But she is a great surrogate because people really understand where she's coming from. Um, in, in some of her more defiant moments of the Doctor, you, know, you really see <coughs> why Barbara would want to stand up to the Doctor in the way that she does, and she's probably the one that does it most, I think, in this season. And I think perhaps that that's something that Doctor Who sometimes lacks. It misses this point of where the Doctor isn't always supposed to be the one who's talking sense. The Doctor often needs to be told by the companion, you know, you're talking shit, mate. Because obviously he's an alien. He thinks along much different moral lines than we do. And I always appreciate when stories, you know, show that. Show that the Doctor isn't this perfect being and that he isn't always right. And that the, the point of having the companions there is to kind of give us a relatable gateway into his world. But yeah, Barbara's probably one of my favorite first Doctor companions. She's probably my second... Yeah, she's my second favorite after uh, fucking... What's his name? Steven. But, you, sound, but... you sound really prepared for today, Brian. You sound really <laughs> enthusiastic about Steven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, my, oh, about... my favorite companion's good old what's-his-name or that fucking Steven twat. Yeah, he's my favorite. <laughs> 
but yeah, Bar- Barbara's character just just plays off the doctor really well. Like there there are scenes in each story where he's like one one stands out to me, and I'm not sure if it's from season one or if it's from a later season. But Barbara Barbara is lying down in a basically on a beach with the doctor and the doctor's the chase. that's that's the chase yeah but yeah just there's a scene like that in every story that just warms my heart and they're real friends well yeah. your heart she insults us singing <laughs> terrible calamity travesty of justice Shut up! I think what Brian's getting at is that like they had like a real relationship as, as friends. Yeah, but Hartnell has the voice of an angel. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't talk about singing, watch out! No, that not that terrible noise. The other one. Um. But yeah, I, just I, I little moments like that make the character for me. Yeah. I also love her just relationship with Ian, like. Oh, they yes, per- perfect transition into the man himself. The Even, hunk of meat that is Ian Chesterton. Because from an unearthly child, you already get the sense that they're more than just casual colleagues. They are at least friends. Like, yeah, yeah. like they're confiding in each other of like, why is, you know, why is Susan so weird? Like, how, how does she not know how many shillings are in a pound? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's, a, they, that's a weird way to sum that up it's just two teachers talking after school why is this child so weird <laughs> <laughs> Sounds, make them sound like bullies more than anything <laughs> oh, you have that fucking weirdo in your class doesn't even know what the fucking chilling is <laughs> sounds like my mother honestly <laughs> okay then oh, oh, that's just an immigrant <laughs> She's gonna steal my son's job. (laughs) He even has the line. He's like, "Ah, I suppose she can't be a foreigner." Let's go bully her grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) We're aliens, my dear boy. I think Doctor Who is actually a story of two bullies getting kidnapped by some immigrants, and you know, (laughs) and we should build a wall, basically, (laughs) around the junkyard. An alternate title for a fucking unearthly child is Doctor Who, the Illegal Aliens. (laughs) Part two, building the wall. (laughs) Build the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Do we want to talk about Ian at all? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'd say Ian... Depends, is he a full-blooded Englishman or is he Romanian? Oh god damn it! Okay, so Ian, oh, what a man! Like Barbara, he doesn't fall into like a stereotypical nineteen sixties male character. Like, oh he, yeah. yeah, yes, he is a bit. He does have a bit more of like the violent scenes. Like he he has, but also he's he is pretty emotionally driven and a hothead in regards to the Doctor. Yeah, he's not a stoic Englishman like that kind of traditional archetype. Yeah, he's very much affected by the events around him. Yeah, yeah but he's, he's also he's also not like the bland cookie cutter action hero either. Like he so easily could have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, even though he he does be in a lot of fight scenes, the the way he often you know gets around situations is by using his wit and his intelligence. 
Yeah. He's yeah. Kind of his his strength doesn't come from his brute strength. It comes from his you know his cleverness, his wiseness, and his ability to uh, you know be quite emotionally intact with situations. I think a good example of this is in a. Uh, the I, this isn't technically season one, but it also is kind of season one. Farewell, Great Maston, because it was originally wrote for season one, and it's got yes. him uh, to beat all of the um, much stronger than him Greek wrestlers. He uses a very scientific version of wrestling where he gets them in all the right places, and that's the kind that kind of sums up Ian. He's not like this big tough action hero. He just he's clever enough to be able to get his way out of lots of situations against people who are much stronger than him. Yeah. He also kind of yeah. does that in the Aztecs, where. Um... He's in a society where uh, men are basically the warriors, so he has to sort of fight um, in a, well, it wasn't supposed to be a fight to death, but kind of ended up being a fight to the death. He used trickery and was like, all right, I'll just get you at a pressure point and mm -hmm. you're going to go down. Yeah, and then there's like the Daleks where he sees that, um, uh, there's the Daleks where he sees that the Thals are not willing to fight uh uh, to fight the Daleks, and thus he uses like a bit of a scare tactic, pretty much, to get them to uh, to fight for him. And what the hell are you doing on the Skype chat, Dylan? I'm just. I, 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 uh, <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, yeah. So he uses kind of like a scare tactic to uh, uh, to stop to to get the Thals to fight for him, and uh, and I really like that about his character. Hello. <laughs> I'm Dylan, sorry. I'm just. I'm just around with. <laughs> okay, this is going to be obviously those of you can't see this, but basically exactly. every time Joey, every time Joey was talking, I was pressing the yawning emoji, and then whenever he wasn't speaking, I was pressing the heart emoji. <laughs> I love you, really, Joey. Oh God. Oh, why did Brian mute himself? He he said BRB. Come on, you need to be intact with the people. Oh, okay. Well. Um, Brian can catch us up on his opinions. I am. I have arrived. Oh, he is here. Okay. So, any thoughts on Ian, Brian? Oh yeah. What a, what a Chad. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Fucking love Ian. Is there anything more to say? It's just Ian is moi. Fucking fair. fair. Fucking hunk of a man. What a unit. <laughs> Dylan, I, think, uh... I swear, if you don't stop this. <laughs> Anyway, uh, okay, we're gonna get into the stories now. Um, talking about an unearthly child now by Anthony Coburn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna kick you from this Skype call. Doctor Who and the illegal alien. We've already <laughs> summed it up, Joey. We don't need to talk about it. What, talk about an unearthly child? Yeah, we already talked about it. No, we're talking about it now. Okay, so, um, anyone for opening thoughts? Right, well... Episode one's great, and then the rest of it's just fucking caveman politics. Because if you want to know what's a riveting way to start off your seminal sci-fi show, it's to have fucking caveman politics for an hour and ten minutes. Yippee. Okay, I'm going to have to defend the caveman politics here, because I actually really oh like episodes. Oh my fucking god. No. No, I'm going to defend it here. Okay, no. I really, I really Denied. Like Denied. Well, well, Denied. Denied. Well, let me put my actual argument forward so you could you, so you have something to respond to other than just, oh, shit. Uh, basically, <laughs> the reason why other historicals work so well is because we have documented evidence about what their societies were like, all of the little interesting things about them, all of their culture, which is what really makes those episodes very interesting. The politics in those episodes really intriguing. 
Whereas here, it's not a defined society or culture. It's just like, these are generic cavemen. So there's no particular culture. There's nothing that makes it particularly interesting. It's just not fun to watch. There's nothing about this that's interesting. I read read a different, like, sort of official published timeline of Earth, and apparently... This isn't the discovery of fire. Other cavemen tribes knew the secret of fire. They say and that in the story, Brian. Like, <laughs> how how fucking retarded do these cavemen have to be? Okay, so I'm going to defend it here. Okay, so I like episodes two through four, and I see where you're coming from, Dylan, about how it's not really fun to watch like an undocumented piece of historical um a, a piece of history that we really can't like it's not engaging at all yeah exactly but i think what does make it engaging um is the performances for me it really does fall down to the performances you have some really strong lead actors and i really do like the supporting cast the characters playing the cavemen cavemen as over the top and hammy as their performances are i enjoy watching them the, the actors are just really fun um i think I, but I th- there's only so far actors can get you, and I think the material they've been given is so weak. There's just nothing to interest me. There's nothing to engage me with it at all. Here's what I'm trying to say, to Joey. This story isn't even focused around a very important historical event. Like, if we were focusing well, not, around... No, not that historicals the... have to be focused around an important historical event. They just have to be focused around... Something interesting, which might be an important start event, but it could also be the culture of a past society, well, which is also was the very invention of fire as a tool. Then, yeah, it would be interesting. But this isn't the story of the invention of fire. It's the story of some retards who forgot how to make fire, and they're just being right. cunt. All right, okay, right. I think we should throw Brian out in uh, the fucking wilderness and wipe his mind and see how long it takes for him to come up with fire. Um, so much better than these cavemen. Knowing that other people have fire and he doesn't, I want to see how long it takes him to come up with it. Probably I mean, at least, at least a couple hours. Fire. At the very least, because... I mean... Alright, Jacob, what do you think of episodes 2? Well, first you have to figure out fire exists. <sighs> but what if they, they already know fire what if, exists? What if, but what if we told you that from the get-go? Oh, yeah, then probably just a couple hours. Yeah. Oh, what? So maybe like, I don't know, <laughs> hypothetically like an hour and 15 minutes, Brian? Huh? Yeah. About, about that length of time? Yeah, but the thing is, the, the, the course of the story takes place over more than an hour and 15 minutes. But you're only watching it for an hour and 15 minutes. Right, but the story actually takes place over the course of like two days. Right. Brian, you're, Brian, you're, Brian, you're treating it like you watched their entire lives trying to find fire. Right, Brian, what we're going to do is we're going to do the Unearthly Child Challenge, where we're going to all get around and watch Unearthly Child. Meanwhile, while watching it, you will have a stick and some ash, <laughs> and you will have to make fire using those two items before the episode ends. I think it's a good challenge. At which point you will have to find a real human skull, put it over the fire, and, and trick people into thinking that it's a dead person. <laughs> So Jacob, what do you, what do you think of episodes two through four? Um, the worst of them is episode three because oh, that's only... just that's just running through the forest for like twenty five minutes. Yes, the only good bits is the I'm a murder the caveman. Let me murder the caveman, Ian. 
This is, this is gonna be... You make it sound like some kind of pedantic guy, like, please, Mr. Ian, please, can we murder the caveman? <laughs> oh my god, I have a drink. I, I just want to see his blood. <laughs> I had a drink. Oh, I fucking choked on it. Fuck you. <laughs> um, oh but god. yeah, like, it's. Please keep that in. <laughs> oh my god. It's not the worst <laughs> thing that Doctor Who's ever done, and I think it gets a bit. No, I like un- it. I think it's a good thing. I think it, it's good to show how much the, the character of the Doctor progresses, really. Yeah, like, there's good stuff in here. It's just... And if you're watching it, like, over the course of, say, three weeks, you'll probably enjoy it a bit more. But you can see where the, why this with this story, the show might have been cancelled had it not been for the Daleks right afterwards. Okay. So I see Dylan's at his games again. I couldn't help but notice (laughs) a little something on my screen. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. uh, So you're making me lose my train of thought, Dylan. Every time you do that, (laughs) I swear, I completely forget everything I'm about to talk about. I, I didn't realize it. emojis could make you lose IQ points. I know, it's just... It's Have just you not the fact... seen the emoji movie? That's true, okay. <laughs> I, I can see it. Okay, so, um, rating out of 10. What do we? What was our rating out of 10 for an earthly child? Well, I mean, I'm going to let you do it separately, to be honest. Wait a minute, uh... you said I didn't have to do them out of 10. I, I, I said... Could... Oh, well, we're Brian could do them out of 8.26, and then we'll do them out of 10, right? <laughs> okay, so, out, out of 10, I think I'm going to give the, the first episode a 9, and the rest of it can have, like, I don't know, a, a 5. Okay, so, average score of 7. All right. Brian? 5 out of 10. All right, Jacob? Um, yeah, I give the first episode a perfect 10, uh, then the rest about an average... Of like four and a half. Okay, um, I'm uh, my thoughts on the overall story. I'm gonna say uh, seven out of ten. All right, uh, we need my... to pick up the pace, people. No. no. So anyway, um, all right. So let's talk about the Daleks now, written by Terry Nation. Uh, Dylan, <laughs> stop. <laughs> going to be interesting for people to listen to uh, if we're just reacting to things then. that they cannot see. Okay. Well, all right, anyway. I'll post an angry react then. Anyway, so we're going to talk about the Daleks now. Uh, this is my personal uh, uh, favorite story of the season. Um, it's just a really strong story. It's, it's pretty obvious why it's held up. Um, and Dylan, so what do you think of the Daleks? So we right, can stop okay, this well, Can I describe my feelings of the Daleks and emojis? <laughs> no, because nobody's going to see it. Nobody is going to see this. Right, well... <laughs> okay, well, first of all, love reacts. And then um, I think maybe slight angry react, And then maybe a wow react really describes it. I'm never hearing right. it on another episode. No, okay, no, okay, it's all right, Joey. I'll stop now. All right, okay, okay. so Daleks. Fucking love it. Brilliant story. Uh, you couldn't get uh, much more of a epic to really put in as your second episode to really hook audiences onto this show, make them want to keep going to get more stories like this. 
absolutely. He's got a brilliant concept and a cautionary tale about, you know, nuclear war. Uh, it's got very interesting villains in the Daleks, but obviously they've been done a lot today. But back, just imagine them as a new villain. It's something that's really interesting for the audience. And I just love every single minute of it. It's well-paced, in my opinion. I know that's controversial because people think episode it's very Episode six. I still think episode six isn't that badly paced. And it just, from start to finish, it feels like a grand adventure, which is something you don't often get from Doctor Who nowadays, but I like these really long stories where it does feel like a massive grand adventure. The only real problem I have with it is, yeah, okay, episode six does maybe have some pacing issues, and also Richard Martin, the episode he directs, because he kind of directs half of the story, he's shit. But Chris Barry is great. Okay. Brian, thoughts on the Daleks? Uh, yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, as far as Dalek stories go, it's certainly far from my favorite, but it's a pretty good one. It's pretty solid. Uh, like Dylan said, there is that bit in the middle that drags. I think it mainly works for me because of the setting and how, and the backstory behind. Oh, it's got the so setting. much atmosphere, doesn't like, it? Like, just well, just the idea that this is what twenty years post World War Two, and. Uh, the the message behind it is absolutely stunning and scary and i yeah that's why the story oh, yeah. works for me yeah oh yeah it's 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 right creepy from the very beginning um it, we're also like only a few months after the cuban missile crisis oh like, yeah, yeah yeah and you have so like you episode 1 totally sets the stage and i think it's a a weird thing to say but i still totally stand by it i think episode 1 might be my favorite of the story even though there are absolutely no Daleks in it, I just I, think the, I, I actually agree with this. It just I, I, I think it, the atmosphere the is so well. Oh yeah, and the atmosphere is so strong. Oh, and what an, and a, the and fucking what an amazing... bastard that Hartnell is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hartnell's basically a child. And then the damn He's cliffhanger. Like, like I, I think that's still probably my favorite. You see, that, that's Chris Barry for you. Because Chris Barry did the first episode, and my god, how do you make something happen? That's only basically four people walking around a small set for How do you make that so entertaining with such oh, great yeah. atmosphere? And yeah. so it's so unnerving, despite the fact literally nothing happens until the end. Oh yeah, yeah. I and think even um, at the end, it's still pretty intense. Like, how do you make a single yeah. scary? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because um, of all the build-up and the way it's shot, most excellent. And then you get into episode two and like something is moving at considering like this. It's not the sink plunger that's scary. It's the, Oh my God, something's alive on this planet where everything has been quiet and dead. And and Barbara is obviously scared by it. It is her first alien encounter. It's so different and inhuman and it is clearly threatening her. Um, There is a reason there is no music, real, real music. It's, it's more of an atmosphere than a actual score. Yeah, it, it has it has this great episode, sense of foreboding. After, after that, Carrie actually composes. Yeah. Well, can we just talk score. about how good Carrie's score is? It was absolutely revolutionary for its time, and oh, it yeah. still holds up today. It's honestly one of the best Doctor Who scores there, there is. There's a reason it gets reused in things like Dalek's Masterpiece. Yeah, it's because they and have no money. Oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> They have no money. I mean, that's just as apt as it's a really effective score. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the more truthful thing, but you wouldn't reuse it if it was really shit, and it's far from that. It's brilliant, and it brings so much to the episode, and it's really the kind of score a sci-fi show like Doctor Who should have. 
You don't need to have all sorts of over-the-top orchestra stuff. Just this kind of unnerving electronic score. It really digs into you. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like that. I really like that. Your way of phrasing that. It's just that it digs into you. It really is just has this constant sense of foreboding that you know something horrible is going to happen. The simple effect, the simple effect of just uh, flipping the film from positive to negative for the first, like the shot on the scanner outside of showing Scarl for the first time really helps just establish Mm -hmm. how weird it is. And I, I think probably like my favorite use of the score in this story is is the part in episode four where there's a sense of doom happening as the Thals come to attempt to make peace with the Daleks and you know that something horrible is oh, going to happen. No, no, that that yeah. one's great, but that's not quite as good as for later on in episode four when he says, the fluid link, I've left it down there in the city. Oh, yes, and it's yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, yeah, so great, so great. That, that then, must be one of the best cliffhangers because it's like so much effort and pain and they've got to do it all again. Yeah, like we spent an entire story worth of adventuring and now we have to go back and do it all again. It's one of the it's reasons just... that episode five holds up so well, whereas episode six fucking doesn't. Hi, episode six. I Did I mention I hate episode six? I, I don't know. It, I kind other, of hate episode six. Than, I mean, other than the cave jumping stuff, which admittedly goes on way too long. Other than that, I, I enjoy the episode, I think. It just cut... Uh, like, because obviously the cave jumping stuff is there to fill up time. Well, one if of the biggest problems is that it's also Richard Martin directing, so it's like, at his Richard Martiniest. This isn't the Richard Martin <laughs> of, say, The Web Planet, where he is trying to do some creative stuff, or even Dalek Invasion of Earth. <laughs> yeah, emphasis on the word try. Oh, uh, Richard Martin. <laughs> here's just like, well, let's just film this scene head on. Maybe we'll cut here. Maybe we won't. It's just, it's just, it's bad direction. Um, that, that doesn't sort of show, it, it doesn't really show that he cares, which is weird because it's obvious that he does in even in where some of his direction fails. See the web planet. See Dalek invasion of Earth. Um, see Edge of Destruction Part 1, which he directed, I think. Did he? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, he directed the first episode of Edge of Destruction. So, um, I think that does it. Uh, what are our scores out of 10 for the Daleks? I mean, it's one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who ever, really. It's just absolutely stunning. Every time I watch it, I'm still kind of gobsmacked as to how good it is with what little they had to work with. And he's a 9 out of 10. And the reason why it doesn't quite get a 10 is because episode 6 is not like is weaker and Richard Martin's directing does kind of hamper it. But everything else, I think, is just extraordinarily well done. And I love Terry Nation. I love Chris Barry, uh, everybody involved in this. And it's the reason why Doctor Who's still around today. All right, Brian, rating out of 10. It's a very strong 7. Seven. Well, I'm going to give you a very strong fist up your arms. <laughs> okay, Jacob, rating out of ten. Seven and a half. Oh, oh my god, oh, what? what? Okay, so I'm going to wank over Dylan right now, and I'm actually going to one-up him. I, I think it's a ten out of ten. I really don't let my admittedly less uh, less enjo- less enjoyment of episode six uh, get in the way. I really think it's a ten out of ten. Well, oh, I, I mean, personally, like, for my personal opinion, <laughs> ten out of ten, but if I'm trying to give it like a you know a more of an objective score as a Doctor Who story, 
it, it does have to be a nine, I'm, I'm afraid. Oh, you're going on objective? Well, not objective, course? but just... Right, well, it's kind of a score based on... Doc, like, it's kind of based on my standard for Doctor Who. Hmm. If you know what I mean. Like, it's not objective as in, like, objective entirely, but just how good is it for Doctor Who? And I, I think, think it's I that. have a standard. I think it's just based on how much I enjoy it. No, I think it's important to work out uh, your standard for Doctor Who, because you don't want to go whining about episodes uh, when, you know, other episodes that you don't complain about it also have the same flaws, you know? That's true. I like to keep the consistency so nobody can claim that I'm just hating on anything. Alright, so now we're going to talk about The Edge of Destruction by the always wonderful David Whitaker. Who would like to begin? Can I, I start? start. Oh, okay. I'm going to give it to Brian because I know Brian has some pretty strong feelings about The Edge of Destruction. Actually, my feelings about The Edge of Destruction have changed a bit. Yeah, right. I like it. I like it better than I did. Uh, like, this is probably I've probably upped it to a seven, but anyway, yeah, the Edge of Destruction. Um, it has some flaws with it that just fucking pissed me off, and uh, some sometimes it does drag in places, and it's weird because the pacing is not fast at all, and this two episode story feels like a four episode story, but. Overall, I guess it has a really good atmosphere, and upon rewatch, I enjoyed it more than the first couple times I watched it, so maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, maybe it's something else, but yeah, I do like Edge of Destruction better than I did. Alright, fun. Jacob? Uh, the first episode is great. Uh, it's an amazing piece of surrealism. Um, like, seriously, if like, if you're trying to take this seriously, realize this is intentionally being surreal. Like, I love the sets. Just, like, um, the TARDIS itself, sort of, it, it, it feels just as alien as Scarrow did. Um, it also oh, feels yeah. like, it, it almost, it, it, it feels really claustrophobic, even though it's one of the bigger sets of this era. It's, it's, it's this weird sort of contradiction of claustrophobia within a wide-open space. Um, like... Part of it is just you feel like the walls are may or may not be closing in. Um, the biggest problem is the conclusion. The simple conclusion doesn't feel very good. By, by that, like, Jacob, are you referring to the fact that they went through so much pain and horror for an, over an hour? In fact, no, over an entire day for them because the button was left pressed in. Yeah, for. A- <laughs> Okay, oh but my also, god, I, I hate but, that But god, I just, so okay, as, as shitty as it is, I do just kind of love the bit of irony in all of that. Like, it's it's kind it's, of fun. Oh, it's amazingly ironic. It just is like, but it also kind of stinks of, I don't know how to conclude this. Well, well let, um, me, let me put it this way. If it had been a comedy, it would have been fucking hilarious. But it wasn't thing. a comedy. I, it was <laughs> meant to be an atmospheric horror story. Yeah, okay, but I think I think the thing that pisses me off more about the ending of the Edge of Destruction is the fact that the fast return switch is still labeled in Sharpie market marker above it. No, no, that doesn't <laughs> that, that that doesn't annoy me. Just that was written there as a no, as, that's as a, charming. A little, oh, come on, that, that it was written like there as a little like note for, do, for Bill. Let's be honest, he doesn't know what. Fuck, he's doing. He has no idea how to fly a TARDIS. He's he's making it all up. He's realized, oh, this is a fast return switch. Well, um, I'm just gonna label that for later. 
I don't know when that's going to come in use. It, it speaks to the Doctor's character very well. Okay, so as much as we can enjoy this story in more of a tongue-in-cheek way, I think one of the true brilliant moments of this story is um is the Doctor's little, I want to call it a speech, a little speech at the end, um, when he's standing in front of the console and he just has that wonderful moment um, it's, it's that shows up. I know yeah. what you're talking it, Yeah, That's it, it, amazing. Oh, yeah, um, and it, it just shows off Hartnell's chops as an actor. Um, he really absolutely sells that. Um, maybe with, like, a little flub in there, but he's still totally in character, and um, uh, I, I buy I, it for I, every... I think this is just an episode I'm really conflicted on, because on the one hand, it is just a bit stupid, but on the other hand, some of the writing, which is very strong in terms of characters, and then some of the acting actually manages to sell it at points, make it quite creepy... And also make it very good as a kind of uh, development for the main cast. I mean, there's. So a reason... I don't know what I think, really. <laughs> I, I there's mean, a reason I... this is included in the beginning box set as a set, and it's a nice conclusion to that, like real arc. Like it feels like the first three stories build up to a decent conclusion here. For I'm the sure they could sell more copies of it. Oh, also, <laughs> how just legitimately scary is Caroline Ford as a person? Yeah, don't come at me with your bloody scissors, you scary bastards. <laughs> I just love that that actually got the BBC in trouble, like, because people were calling complaining that Caroline Ford used the scissors in a threatening way. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Those complaints are kind of right, because she's you... terrifying with this. Oh, oh God, yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you know when that time when people first saw the train on the cinema and they all dived out the way? Well, even to this day, when people see Caroline Ford holding those scissors, they dive out the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know I fucking do. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so I guess anything else to add on The Edge of Destruction before we give our scores? Makes my cock hard. Don't watch it in isolation. You kind of have to watch it sort of after you've seen the first two stories. That's fair. And, and if your cock gets hard, save it for the mind robber. <laughs> okay, so Dylan, um, what do you? Uh, what is your score out of ten for the Edge of Destruction? I don't even know. I mean, maybe like a, either a six or a seven, depending on how generous I'm being. That's six, probably. Okay, Brian. Wow. Somehow my score is higher than Dylan's. It's a it's a seven. Really? Right. And yeah. Jacob. Um. It's a six, and I can break it down by episode. Episode one is an eight, and episode two is a four, giving it an even six. Okay, Christ so for me, for me, for, I actually agree with Brian on this. I think it's a seven. I really enjoy it a lot. Um, so really, it's, it's, it's quite a fun little story. Leaving the button pressed in is a perfect ten, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just for that, like the story becomes that, a fucking that part. Ten. That, that exact <laughs> moment when you realize that it's because they left the button pressed in. Ten out of ten. Oh, something <laughs> we didn't even talk about in it, um, which leads brilliantly into Marco Polo. Um, the little character moment between the Doctor and Barbara. Uh, at that, the end. Yeah, that, that's what I was referring to when I was talking about doing the characters really well. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought yeah. you were talking about Hartnell's speech, like in front of the TARDIS. Well, like... that too, but, you know, it's a good moment. Yeah. So anyway, um, let's talk about now Marco Polo, written by John Lucarotti. Um, who would like to begin on this? I'll go. Again. All right, Brian. All right, so Marco Polo. Okay, this is, this is, a, big, this is a biggie for me, because when I initially watched it, I loved the shit out of it. 
And Brian, if you're about to say that you hate I'm it, very I'm concerned. Go- I'm going to kick you from this call. You're uh, dead, I, Brian. I'm not saying I'm hating it. I'm just saying it's not the best <laughs> ever. Because I fucking loved the shit out of it when I first watched it. Then upon rewatch, it was a lot less enjoyable. And I don't know why, but it was. And it's it has fallen, in my opinion. It is no longer like up there with my my favorite That's kind season of the one opposite story. of my opinion. Well, not because I hated it the first time I watched it. I liked it the first time I watched it. But I can just infinitely watch this story it's such a fun adventure and it's an adventure in the truest sense of the word in a way that you don't always get in doctor especially after kind of that era of doctor it's a proper long journey which you feel like you're there all the way for and it's just downright entertaining with great character at the play a nice variety of locations constant new things being there to interest you and a nice look at you know China under Mongolian control, which is Upon... an interesting part of history, which you know not everybody gets to really learn about. So it's nice to see a well, representation of it here. So it's just endless entertainment for me. I, I guess upon re- I guess upon rewatch for me, it was just like I noticed some smaller details that I didn't notice the first time that irked me a bit. Such and as. Susan's really terrible in this one. What? No! It's, I think it's one of Susan's. I think it's Susan, one of Susan's better things because I love her her dynamic with Ping Cho. Oh, I don't like that. Really, I like that dynamic. That dynamic. I mean, like honestly, I think <laughs> Ping Cho. It I better not Ping... be that bloody um, Susan and Barbara audio you made that ruined it for you, Brian. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. It's just I genuinely don't like that dynamic. I honestly think like Ping Cho's a better character than Susan and Ping Cho kind of being there constantly with Susan improves like Susan's dynamic. She feels like someone who actually like connects with Ping Cho almost on a personal level but not quite. Um but they both feel like they're kind of trapped, I feel. You know, this kind of starts Susan's idea of, you know, she's kind of trapped with traveling with with her grandfather and she does want to do something more and uh, which eventually of course leads to her exit next season. Um but they they are kind of a, they are kindred spirits in a way and I and I appreciate that a lot. I I I think Marco Polo's biggest has has two flaws, two really big flaws as a story. One of them it's not its fault. Like all the both not kind of necessarily its fault. The first one it's a bit long. It's oh, knowledge no, no. to that. It would be worse if you took off an episode because the reason why it's so entertaining yeah, is here's the problem. It's a long it's, it's, adventure. It's, it's a, a long bit long, journey. but it, and the characters are so well fleshed out. Like the they're just so interesting. Not a dull moment. There is not a dull moment. Actually, uh, you the, could cut Marco Polo down because there's a half. There's a half an hour edit. No, that half of our version does not do the story justice. I, that I will half say. Half version shit. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. You could cut things and still get a decent story. The, the one of the biggest flaws in why I can't rate this higher than I wish I could. There isn't footage. You. Oh, oh, well, fuck you... off, Jacob. Use your imagination. Oh, there are... Terror is a ten out of ten. I mean, and come there on. There isn't a single scrap of footage other than crabs. From just that. okay, but come on. Just the line that the doctor says that Chinese child makes me nervous makes it a ten out of ten. Jesus. <laughs> the Asian child. The Pink Show is the original Asian child. We're done here. <laughs> it's all full That's of it. Apps. 
So, um, so okay, I want to talk about the characters briefly because I I think they're all just absolutely amazing and, and compelling to watch. So we already talked about Ping Cho, but obviously Marco Polo is is it has a great journey. Um, Tigana is an amazing villain, just so devious. I think why, why you've got to love Marco Polo is because he's such a conflicted character, in a sense. You've got to like him, but also not like a lot of the things he does because he does a lot of bad shit. But he kind of always seems to manage to make up for it. Which is what mm-hmm. makes him a lot more compelling than just like you know straight up. Oh look, this oh, is a historical yeah. figure, and he's a nice guy. That's yeah. but you can see where you that... can see where he's coming from when he does like the horror, a lot of the horrible things. Yeah, like, like that's you, another you really... thing that pisses me off. Marco Polo always fucking catches them because someone fucks up in the most avoidable way possible. <laughs> I mean. No. Half the time it's Susan and Ping Cho fucking up. Anyway, so what I was about to go into was uh, um, the, the great Kublai Khan in this, who is an absolute joy to watch as a character. Oh, he's hilarious. Um, this is as... wa- he's saying watch with air quotes. Oh, shut the fuck up. Okay, anyway. So Kublai Khan is a great character. Um, absolutely a brilliant actor to work off. I can't think of the actor at the moment. But um, great to work off of the doctor. So um, much epic buildup, and then he comes out, he's just like, "Oh, my back hurts!" It's, yeah, it's brilliant. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I um, do like the Kublai Khan. What was that? I do like Kublai Khan. That's one of the mm-hmm. highlights. Well, I think you should give it a ten out of ten just because of Kublai. Khan. One of the many highlights, Brian. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, I guess that about does it. Uh, scores okay, that are 10. Just, can, wait, oh. can I just say something before we go on to scores? Oh, sure. Anybody who hasn't watched this, or anybody who plans to re-watch this in the future, do yourself a favor and watch the Loose Cannon Color Recon. Because Ooh, yes. the sets in this story look so beautiful, they deserve color. Yeah. So, um, I guess since you were just praising it, score out of 10? Ah, oh, solid 9. Nice. Same. Same for me. 9 out of 10. Brian? 7. Again. And Jacob. Um, a generous uh, 8 out of 10. Very. That's not generous. That's that's underrating it. Well, uh, I'll give you a generous 10. amount and of saliva when that, I spit on you. That this, should ne- this story <laughs> should never be animated. The only way the story should... You should, you should never try to animate the story because that would you would lose it. The only way to watch it is either... The two recons, or if they find it, the BBC should not. I, I say the BBC, this is one of the story the BBC should not be animating. Well, I mean, it's the one that, uh, by the logic and the fact that it had the most copies sold, should be the most likely to return at some point. But who knows? Because yeah. how a lot it of not the copies have been it was sold destroyed. to fucking Canada. Yeah, well, you to... fucking Canada's a big place, Jacob. You never know; they could turn up someday. I know. I'm waiting. So anyway, I guess let's uh, now start talking about The Keys of Marinus by Terry Nation. Um, Jacob, you haven't started any, any of these yet. Uh, would you like to begin? Yeah, um, uh, yeah I'll begin this one. Um, mainly, uh, <laughs> Do I it! Think, stop! <laughs> I, think, I think people overlook this one a little bit. Um... <laughs> be, as as a bit crap. Um, and well, I mean, let's be real. It, it is, is crap. 
Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah, it's so much fun because it, it's a bit crap. Like, it's, it's a, a bit slice crappy. of proper cheese, you oh, know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's not a story which is more full of adventure. And that's what I've said a lot this year. That's what uh, this uh, podcast, but that's why I really like a lot of this early Doctor Who because it's got so much of a sense of adventure, which is something that's kind of lost from Doctor Who, but that's what makes Doctor Who so compelling when it gets that right. And this has that in abundance. So despite the fact that it was probably written on the back of a napkin in two seconds. It's so much fun. It's I'd very say that, that And they, they the, put so much effort into it, despite it being so hard to do on that. Of part. all the stories of this season, this story has the best pace. Like, it moves along at a really decent, good, solid pace. I'll agree with that. Um, I agree. Uh, yeah, I think... Um, with Marco Polo coming in with would, a very close s- second for pacing. I wouldn't say best pace. I'd just say a very different pace. You know, well, I, I would say, well, I could rewatch any season one story well, on, the, the, on the flip of a dime. Like, I think that, I think this story, audience. I think um, this story specifically has such a great rewatchable value to it. I just yeah. love that every episode takes you to a different place, because in essence, that's what Doctor Who is. It's about exploring these different alien places, and it's just... I mean, it, yeah, just, so it just, it one it just captures the spirit of the show. Um, it, it proves that the show... That do- it, it's it's the first story to prove that the show can do episodes where the Doctor doesn't show up. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Oh, s- speaking of that, I think um, I think Bill Hartnell's, what is it, three-week, two-week, three-week? Two-week. It's two-weeks. Two-week. His two-week break. Actually, um, when he comes back in episode five, he is absolutely on fire, and I think he gives one of his best performances in episode five. Oh, he's great in the courtroom, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, I love that, and I specifically love the scene where where um, he's using Barbara as like a demonstration for how the murderer could have uh, could have killed the guy and gotten the key and knocked out Ian. I think Bill Hartnell in that scene is just—it's a fine example of what makes him <laughs> the, the, such the, an, an energetic and, and fun to watch doctor. The, the best moment in uh, this whole story has to be when uh, in the second episode, uh, the the Velvet Web. They give him uh, the most advanced scientific laboratory possible, and on camera, all you see is him just picking up a dirty mug. Said, "Oh, imagine what we could do with this, dear boy." <laughs> boy. Um, that's great, but yeah, Bill Bill is great in this. Um, companions are great in this too. Despite it all I mean... seems he's finally happy with where the world has taken him by now. Oh like, yeah, yeah. But he's still not quite the hero yet. He's he's very much yeah. just trying to get back to his TARDIS and leave. I mean, they but, literally but the almost the leave. Is happy with uh, by this point. He's especially when he comes back. He's happy with where he is as a character now. Yeah, and I think like I, mean, I, I I still love the Doctor that just wants to escape from bad situations. They literally almost get away from Marinus at the end of episode one. Um, well, I think uh, Terry Nation seems so adamant this TARDIS crew won't just stop to help someone yet. He wrote in an extra scene where they try to get away, but they get fucking cock-blocked by Arbitan. <laughs> oh, fuck. I, I, I'm going to... Okay, anyway. <laughs> cock-blocked by Arbitan. Um... Arbitan, <laughs> more like Arbitan. Well, I mean... <laughs> I mean, the board was a bit of a cock-block at the end, which is, you know, weird considering their latex costumes. I think, if anything, they'd be the kinky ones. So, God damn it. Um, 
so uh, Ian and Barbaros, I think, are specifically good Maybe in this the story. Maybe the lead board just BDSM's Arbitan, and that's why he doesn't show up after the first episode. Episode four is perhaps one of the darkest episodes of Doctor Who. Because oh, yeah, oh you're, talking about the, the, you're talking about the cabin guy, right? The Snows of Terror. Oh, oh. God. I love that episode so much. So do I. So, but it is... It is, is that, so there is, odd, there is because it comes right after one of the wor- the worst the weakest episode of the story. I, I like, love I love the screaming jungle and you can kill me if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those are those are fantastic. I mean, um, is there another Doctor Who episode that has as much atmosphere as the Snows of Terror? Let's be honest. Oh yeah, it's so strong and like. I usually don't like. I usually am like able to call out and laugh at the use of stock footage in, doc, in classic Doctor Who, but when they use like the wolves and, and and the snow and the wind stock footage in in Snows of Terror, I kind of believe that that's part of the set and like it's really interesting to watch. There's, it creates such an atmosphere. I it's kind of a shame that John, John Gorey didn't really come back and direct Dylan. anything after this. Hmm. I specifically love the uh, the music that they use for this particular episode. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an episode more rapey than this one? Um, I don't know. Oh, well, uh, the two, two doctors. doctors. Yeah, that's... <laughs> but this oh, one yeah. is pretty bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come to shock eye, <laughs> my pretty. Yeah, it is a bit inappropriate having uh, Ivor Salter, who's a bear of a man, trying to get his hands on Barbara. Uh, not sure how I feel about that, but you know he does get his comeuppance in the end. Oh shit! What was the name of the character? The cap, um, the cabin guy. Do you, does anyone remember? Vassor. No. Oh yeah, that's it. And Although, he's played by Francis de Wolf. Although, no, he's not. He's played by Ivor Salter. No, I I pulled up the Wikipedia page. He's played by he's. What? I thought he's played by Ivor Salter. Oh, you're this. fucking wrong. Alrighty then. <laughs> oh no, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. Dylan no, was no, wrong with the heart. Uh, yeah, Read no. and weep. <laughs> you know, he played. Um, what do you call him? Uh, hey Joey, you know what we should no, do? Because I'm on a time he crunch. Played, we should he, do the episode ratings. He played hey. Agamemnon in uh, the Myth Makers, which Francis DeWolf was also in. I think. Hmm. Oh no, sorry. He played Odysseus in the Myth Makers. I can't get anything right today, can I? No, so anyway, you um, you know, I actually do agree. We've talked about this for a while. <laughs> um, let's give ratings. Uh, for me personally, and I know this is gonna come out of fucking nowhere. I think this uh, this story is a nine out of ten because it's just so much fun. Oh, to Dylan, watch. I just realized Francis DeWolf played Agamemnon in the Myth Makers. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I get the two confused. <laughs> Dylan, what is your score out of ten for the for the Keys of Marinus? I don't know, uh, twenty. Oh, Score it him, please. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Twenty. I've told you. Shut up. Uh, I'd give it an eight. Okay, uh, Jacob. Uh, it's a, a high six. What? Oh, no. Okay, Dylan. Do you have an actual score to give, or you just want me to move on? All right. Okay, I'll give it eight. Rate me Francis de Wolves out of ten. <laughs> So, okay, now we're going to talk about the Aztecs, written uh, once again by John Lucarati, um, the second returning writer of the series. Overrated! Um, you're Aztec- oh, fucking overrated, because you're pumped out a <laughs> fucking spoiled brat like you. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. So, um, okay. anyway. Um, 
Wow, that that threw me off. So anyway, we have, so we have Brian Smart. Off as much as this. Fired his shots. <laughs> okay, uh, Aztecs. What what hasn't been said about the Aztecs already? It's like the tried and true um, Hartnell story. And Wait, uh, I know what hasn't been said about the Aztecs before. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Did this man just call it the A A? No, wait, fuck. That's not how you spell ass. Did... <laughs> you, you get the joke, I was trying to make. <laughs> the Oz. <laughs> the ass text. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> you can't spell ass. <laughs> That's Brian for you. (laughs) To to quote the comment section on my last panel discussion, Brian was on crack in this one. (laughs) Oh, actually, okay, so the Aztecs, a great story. Um, Bill Hartnell, once again, one of his finest performances. Um, he gives a lot of his best ones in season one, I think. Um, uh, uh, he's he's fantastic to watch. I think this is honestly like there have been little quips and jokes in previous stories before this point, but the Aztecs, I think, is the first intentionally like truly funny comedy s Doctor Who story that still is very whoa, historical, whoa, whoa. very educational. You think you think the Aztec is a comedy? Oh, uh, the... Are you insane. <laughs> I'd say it's a pretty comedic adventure. I, I think it's the first it's with comedic enough. elements, but it's not a comedy. Okay, I, would, really I, would, dark. I wouldn't call it's it about, a com- It's about them trying to stop a whole society of people murdering a bunch of people. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. I didn't say it was a straight up comedy. Yeah, who said? Who, did. who said you can't make that funny, Dylan? <laughs> I mean, people make Holocaust but jokes all the time, thing. Dylan. Okay, point B, this story is very funny and very dark at the same time, and it pulls it off absolutely brilliantly. You have some great performances from the main cast, specifically, um, obviously, between Bill Hartnell and Jacqueline Hill. Um, William Russell as Ian in this is very intense, I think. Um, Has very much is... I'm sorry, I just can't agree that this is a... It's got some funny moments, but overall, it's not a funny episode. That's not at all what the focus is on. I wouldn't say... It's not even because it's not even consistently throwing out jokes. It's just there's an occasional good one. The key word I went for there was intentionally. Like you had a lot of intentionally very funny moments, Jacob's more than previous stories this. before this. Yeah, but it's the fact that you kind of put put that alongside the dark nature of it, as if they're on equal footing in this story. It's not a comedy. <laughs> I don't know, because even, like, even when you're not focusing on the Doctor, you still have some kind of funny moments where uh, where Tatoxel, it tries to give the poison to Barbara, and she's like, oh yes, well, as a show of good faith for me, you should also um, uh, do the same, and you should drink and you should drink this uh, as well. And he's, like, the way, I can't remember the actor who plays Tatoxel, but um, John Ray that, That's it. And, um, and he, like, he has that funny moment where he steps back and he's like, I will uh, you, no. <laughs> And um, well, I think what that's called—it's called engaging good writing rather than oh look, let's make a comedy. <laughs> My point is clearly not coming across. Anyway, um, I think that about covers it. Uh, anything else to add on the Aztecs? 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fucking it's, hilarious. It's, I mean, it, what a fun comedy about them trying to avoid good, killing something. Not as I'm, I'm, Dylan, I'm, Dylan, I'm fucking kicking you right now. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> um, Jacob, anything to add for the Aztecs? Uh, um, uh, we, we should probably mention this is probably one of Barbara's best stories. Uh, I, I think I already so said good for her Jacob character was. development. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, like nobody uh, really. It's a story that people try to act like every like a lot of stories try to and fail to emulate. Like, mm. well, like, what I, what I'd say is the point is it's what the first story really focuses on time travel is like a part of the plot, and I think that's why uh, people kind of say that a lot of stories try to emulate because it is it's something that has been redone in the future of Doctor People trying to change history. Yeah. Yeah. To varying degrees of success, I also but think it's done it really I, I well think... in a really emotionally engaging way because of all the great characters, lots of the great dialogue, and just a really brilliantly acted and well constructed story. Yeah, yeah, I think, and also I love, absolutely adore the ending of this story. Um, Barbara says, "Like we we didn't win, we lost," and um, and then like without words, as they walk back into the TARDIS, um, Jacqueline Hill and, and William Hartnell have those like just kind of looks, not quite to the camera, but around them and, and what they've done on this adventure. And the score pretty much does all the work there. The score is pretty depressing at the end. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, all, all, the, all they did was send a good man to his death in the middle of the desert. Yeah. You know, that, that's the only thing she accomplished. Yeah. And Joey said this is a comedy. I did say this. (laughs) I did not say it was a straight-up comedy. (laughs) You send old good people to die in the middle of the desert and it's a comedy. Okay, but are we ignoring the fact that Brian is the one that doesn't like this story? Brian, what is your score out of 10? My score out of 10? Uh, probably another 7. What? You were just saying it was overrated as shit. It, it is overrated, but that doesn't mean I don't like it to some extent. Jesus Christ, Joey, what do you think I am, a Nazi? Yeah, well, yes. sister? You are literally... Actually, yes, you are. You play yeah. Adolf you Hitler. Are li- yeah, you are literally Adolf Hitler. Like, it's... Oh, shit. He's right. <laughs> I played Hitler. It was far too convincing to make you not a Nazi. Ooh, great plug, by the way. Coming out soon, Doctor Who Exodus to the Joey Morgan YouTube channel. And releasing it, releasing in four. <laughs> all right. All right. No, 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 no. Stop, stop it with that. I love how I'm not the one who mentions the VNAs in this episode initially. <laughs> so, um, score out of 10. Oh, you already said it. Jacob, what is your score out of 10 for the Aztecs? Uh, it's, it's, it's an eight. A high eight. Okay. And Dylan. Right. So for the, I believe it's spelled... Double A S text, which is supposed to say Aztecs. Um, I'm going to give it a, a nine. I agree. I'm going to give it nine asses out of ten. <laughs> I, I would agree. Nine out of ten. Um, fuck. God, what is life? All right. So let's talk about now the Censorites by Peter. I'm R. starting R. this one because Censorites is underrated. Okay, it's so not... Jacob, wait, wait, Jacob, Jacob. Oh, yeah, you're J- brother, Jacob, you're man. forgetting. I'm the ultimate censorite apologist. Jacob, you just stepped Dylan, on me. Dylan, Jacob, you just Dylan. stepped on me saying the name Peter R. Newman just as much as the Doctor Who Dylan. team stepped on Peter R. Newman as a human. Dylan. <laughs> I love Peter R. Newman. Dylan, Jacob's a member of the Brotherhood. <laughs> oh. What? Oh, do you like it too, Brian? Yeah, I, th- I think we all. I think we all like the sensorites here. Really? This is the first time I've been on like a, a Skype with four people who actually like the sensorites. This is oh, exciting. it's fantastic! <laughs> I, love I, I, I will say the pacing isn't always the best, 
Um, hi, episode six. Oh, no. I don't... I don't... Is there not a single episode six you enjoy? Uh, <laughs> uh, episode six of the Reign of Terror. Um, and of Daleks' Invasion of Earth. And Seeds uh, of Doom. And uh, Talons of Wind. You've, li- you've missed the best episode the six. Asian, Which one? Uh, I don't oh, like Power of the Daleks. Of the mind, oh, right, yeah. I... Power of the Daleks. Evil of the Daleks. Marco Polo. Um, really? Episode 6 of Evil of the Daleks is like the weakest one of that episode. Wait, which episode? Actually, I'll agree with that you on that one, Dylan. Okay, uh-huh. so back to the Sensorites. <laughs> Opening thoughts, Jacob. Um, I think, the you, one, it's great. It's a story you cannot watch in one go. I watch it in one go every time. Um, I do. <laughs> I usually do it in two settings. Yeah, you, you really, but that's, that's kind of standard for a lot of six-parters, that you really shouldn't be watching them all at once. I watch um, them all at once, almost every time. Um, Joey, you yes. cooks. A lot of people say this is um, like I, I, I do think the first half is stronger. Probably the first episode is the strongest episode. It's so atmospheric and so. Creepy. Oh yeah. Oh, the second episode, episode is amazing, just in the fact that it's essentially meant to be filmed in one take, like, like mm. it was essentially meant to be f- f- filmed with no breaks in recording. Um, so like, it, it wasn't, there was like a recording break halfway through, but it's sort of, it, 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 it's a script that feels live and I really love that aspect of it. Um, I love the danger that Ian gets into, um, being poisoned. Um, oh yes, I love that cliffhanger. What is that? Epi- the episode four cliffhanger, I think? Yeah. I, I um, love, it's, it's one of the first Doctor Who societies that feels, a, feels like an actual society, like, that isn't Yeah, quite it feels alive. It feels alive and, you know... Interesting. Like it's interesting. Uh, yeah, a glimpse into an alien society for the first time. Again, because we get to spend so long with them, even though it doesn't go too in depth, it's just fully engaging, and it's just something I enjoy personally. I understand why people don't like it completely, because you know, I can I can get why people are just fucking bored to tears by it, but it's just something that happens to fulfill what makes me happy. Well, I also <laughs> like the environmental message behind it, but that's just my political opinion seeping through. I mean, so, I... Titan the environment isn't a political opinion. <laughs> At least it shouldn't be. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> you're just like, you know, they're just, you know, the, the other half of people who are just like, yeah, you know, fuck the environment. I want the earth to die. <laughs> <laughs> the political opinion is how we, is really how you protect it. It's not yeah. you protect it. Yeah. Well, no, there, there is lots of people who don't give a shit, Jacob. So yeah. anyway, um... Uh, oh, uh, great cliffhangers. I actually, despite the slower moments in the story, which I still enjoy, you know, I think I enjoy the story the whole way through, the cliffhangers are really, like, some of the strongest of, of, of the of the Hartnell era, I think. <laughs> Can Ooh. I just say, my, my favorite also... thing about the cliffhangers is when there's an episode called Kidnap, and the kidnap doesn't happen until the, kidnap the last is the ten cliff- seconds. <laughs> the last ten the seconds of the episode. I also like how they, how they, oh shit, what's the word there was some there was a really good mo- I like that, how that... they I like how they acknowledge the fact that the costumes actually look identical. <laughs> yeah. But you're like, yeah, you all look the same. But also, how the That's hell racist, would, okay. How the hell would no other sensorite notice this before? Cuz they're like, oh yeah, you see you all look the same. I would have never noticed. And he's like, wait. We do all look the look same. The same. <laughs> it's like really you didn't I think it's the whole out? telepathic theme. Like this is this is also the Sunstrike's first real 
sort of contact with a non-telepathic race. Mm -hmm. I, I think you've got to remember that the sensorites don't really see all that well. I mean, switching the lights true. off is enough to do them in, you know? <laughs> yeah, but but also they have to see, like, well enough to, to know, like, who the Great Leader is and, and, and who the second elder, first and second elders are. Yeah, well, I mean, it is just a bit of fluff, but you know, that's why I enjoy the story, because it is just a bit of fluff. Oh, yeah, and it's it fills up six weeks just fine enough, and I, I enjoy it. So, uh, scores out of ten, Dylan? Ah, seven. I know I, I, know I like it, but, you know, just gotta give it a seven. I agree. I, I give it a seven. Brian? I'd give it an eight. Oh, wow. Hm. Jacob? Um, on terms of enjoyment, it's about a seven, but in terms of, you know, actual quality... It's, I give it a 5.6. Oh, yeah, there, there, there isn't much uh, quality to it, really. Well, there, there is some good it, writing here it's, and there. It's but... better than average, and it deserves a reappraisal, but it's not... Just don't go well, into you, it expecting a series. You're stealing my video story. series, aren't you? <laughs> what? I mean, the whole panel discussion thing, I mean, podcast thing, came <laughs> from you. I've done panel discussions, probably, you know, I've done everything. I'm taking my scores from my marathon, mind you. I'm going to pull a, a fine bros on you and monetize panel discussion. <laughs> <God> <laughs> okay, so well, we're going to move podcast, on now. And... So it's not a panel oh, okay. discussion. We're going to talk about the last story of season one, The Reign of Terror, uh, the first story ever written by Dennis Spooner. So who would like to take the floor on this? I want to spoon with Spooner because he's a fucking excellent writer. Oh, he is. Yeah. All right. Well, that costume that Hartnell wears is an, uh, is just reason enough for this. Story why why isn't that his costume head? for just forever? Like even <laughs> when he's not the Doctor, when he's just in real life, when he's on his deathbed, he needs to be wearing <laughs> no! <it>. amazing. <laughs> I like to think they buried Bill Hartnell in his French Revolution outfit. <laughs> I'd say this is. I'd say this uh, is. If, well, can I not make a single video without talking about the death of a Doctor Who actor? <laughs> By the way, here's the one who started it. Is dead. And a lot of them are dead. <laughs> well, there isn't a single classic Doctor Who story that doesn't have at least one dead actor. Oh, God. I await, I await the day that Joey commits suicide because Katie Manning died. <laughs> Shut up. Wait, you stop talking about death! Here's the thing, though. That'll probably actually happen. All right. Anyway, moving on. Um, so my thoughts on The Reign of Terror. I think, um, well, I do really like it. I think it's probably Dennis Spooner's weakest script for the show. Um, well, that's just because he's got so many good ones under his belt, really. Well, yeah, yeah, true. You know, um, to say it's the weakest Dennis, Dennis Spooner script is, isn't really saying, like, it's a bad story at all. Um, however, I do have to say that I'm... This is probably, I think, in my opinion, one of the weaker classic historicals. Um, which, again, isn't saying much because there are a lot of really good ones. They're uh, almost uniformly good, to be honest, in terms of the pure historicals, at least. Yeah, yeah. But also, I think um, this this story does kind of suffer from, you know, getting captured a lot and waiting to be rescued and getting captured yeah. again. But it happens it, it, a lot. It's a really good story, and it's got some really good characters, and all that's great. But I think the problem is it is it's more focused on capture, escape, capture, escape than the French Revolution itself. What makes a lot of the other pure historicals much more successful in this is the fact that they're focusing on the society and what's, I'm gonna well, and what's interesting. Ahead. I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you on that one. I mean, I think it portrays the French Revolution pretty nicely and tells an exciting story pretty well. Um, 
Well, maybe in like the very beginning and very end, but a lot of the middle is just capture and escape. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Joey. And also a cardinal sin at the end, actually, is where it gets the history completely wrong. And I understand, you know, nothing could be entirely historically accurate, but it literally skips over five years of history. That is true. When Robespierre is overthrown, the directory takes power. uh, And Napoleon is still a nothing. He's still just some random like uh, colonel somewhere. He hasn't become a general yet. He doesn't become a he doesn't become a famous general until seventeen ninety eight, and this is in seventeen ninety four or seventeen ninety three or one of the two. So I mean, I mean, also like this is the first actual pure historical not written by John Lucarotti, and John Lucarotti at this point had had the pure historical down to a science. Um, so yeah. really, so really, other pure historical writers were going off of John Lucarotti's method. And just trying to kind of replicate that. Dennis Spooner, eventually with the Romans and, and onward, knew how to take on a, a pure historical in his own way at that point. Well, I think why uh, Lucarotti's worked better is because he was coming at it from a more general point of view. Like, there wasn't any specific event that's being focused on. It's just yeah. going and looking at these sites, maybe with an occasional you know, historical figure. Whereas with this, it's focusing on very specific events, and it gets them wrong. I also think that John Lucarotti was very much writing historical stories because he was knowledgeable on them, and it was just for a news TV show, and Dennis yeah. knew he was going in to write Doctor Who, a historical story for Doctor Who, and Doctor Who had something of a name at that point. Yeah, because, um, like, by the time, like, when when Lucarotti was writing Marco Polo, like, Earthly Child, I don't even think, had aired yet. Yeah. So, like... Uh, Either way, I think we can all agree that Farewell Great Macedon should have replaced this story, as good as it is. But Farewell Great Macedon is just infinitely. I agree, but I, I agree. But then again, would we really want to sacrifice Dennis Spooner for Morris Fari? Yes. Actually, really? no. I don't know. I kind of love both of them. Can we have both? I don't think so. I think it would would have been one or the other. Yeah, like it was on the strength of this script that Spooner was chosen to replace Whitaker. I wasn't as a story editor, so like, yeah, yeah but uh, I'm not talking about. The, I'm talking about not talking about the actual logistics of what would have happened. I'm just saying, if we could just uh, move that out, put that in, and then no other effects. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, rating out of ten for the Reign of Terror, Dylan. Oh, eight out of ten. It's a really solid, really fun story. Uh, and I don't feel it quite does the historical, pure historical genre quite as well as a lot of other pure historicals, but it still does it well. Uh, it's very, it's commonly made, it's fun to watch, just doesn't quite reach the heights that John Lucarotti had earlier this season, and other writers would uh, later on in the show. All right, Brian? I'll probably give this one an eight, too. I mean, yeah, I think, I think an eight is in order, because originally I was like, I think it's a seven, but now thinking back on how much I enjoyed it last time I watched it, nah, it's probably an eight. Alright, and Jacob? Uh, it's a seven. Um, suffers from the fact that William Russell's on vacation, and Spooner doesn't know how to deal with that. Oh, with that yeah, that is yeah. a problem with this yeah. story. It's like, one... Because Ian's make... a pretty big plot point in the story, and... And they just kind of, like, filmed all of his scenes at once. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I give it a 7, personally. Um, Yeah, pretty much the same reasons. So, 
I guess now let's uh, for our last thing for this podcast episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed it, enjoyed it and stuck around to this point. Let's um, give... Wait, weren't we doing uh, one final thing? Yeah, or... that, that's, this, is, this is the final thing, Jacob. Oh, I, I heard um, that yeah, was Jacob, the final. shut up, I Jacob. That was the final thing. Sorry, what's what's the final thing? My internet just took a crap oh, on me. Well, I didn't even say it yet. So the final thing um, is we're going to give our rankings from worst to best of season oh, one. So boy. who would like to begin, or do we want to throw me under the bus? I can do it if you want. Okay, and also keep in mind, don't interrupt the person giving their ranking until That's it's right, over. Then we, then we give their thoughts on, you know, uh, give our thoughts on what they're I listening. do have some etiquette. Come on, Joey. All right, uh, all right let, let me think. So probably the weakest, uh, I don't know if we child, despite the first episode being so good. It's just the rest of it kind of drags it down, despite that being brilliant. Uh, then after that, uh, Edge of Destruction. Then after that, uh, The Sensorites. After that, Reign of Terror. Uh, after that, uh, the Aztecs, and then after that, Marco Polo, then after that, uh, oh wait, no, I forgot to put the Keys Mariners. The Keys Mariners would be below the Aztecs, and then the Daleks is the best one. Alright, very cool. Anyone got any thoughts on that? I kind of disagree, I, I very much disagree with an Earthly Child being the weakest of the season. But obviously, uh, I agree with Dylan on that, but most of the list is very different from my own. Okay. So, um, I guess I'll give mine next. So, my personal uh, ranking of season one goes from bottom to top. Uh, I think Reign of Terror is the weakest of the season. Um, then Edge of Destruction, The Sensorites, uh, then An Earthly Child, then Marco Polo, The Keys of Marinus, The Aztecs, and at the top, The Daleks. Let me get this straight. You like An Unearthly Child more than The Reign of Terror, and you're threatening the rest of us to kick us out of this Skype call. Well, I'm pretty. I'm the one in charge of it, so you know. <laughs> so, so, so his word is kind of law. Fair enough. <laughs> all, right. all right. So mine is the one true season one ranking, as we can all tell. Who else would like to give their clearly invalid opinion? Uh, I'll give mine. Anybody who wouldn't put an unearthly child over the reign of terror. Me. <laughs> all right. So weakest of the season is an unearthly child. Uh, I disagree. Go on. Without a doubt, it's an unearthly child. Next up, we start to get into the stuff I like. Marco Polo is next. Then the Aztecs, Edge of Destruction, Reign of Terror, Sensorites, Daleks, and Keys of Marinus. What an what? Oh, oh my god! <laughs> that is... I'm, are you mad? I'm mostly off-put by Marco Polo being the second weakest of the season. I mean, most of it I like. It's Wait, just did, did you say like the Sensorites was your favorite? Oh, no, the, the Keys of Mariners. I mean, I love the Keys of Mariners, but the best of season one? I'm doing this objectively. This is just in terms of enjoyment. Yeah, you I know, of... but still. But Wait. still. Subjectively, not objectively. Yeah, I was like, objectively. But what the still. Hell? <laughs> <sighs> wow. Okay, well, I. Jacob, you can't do worse than that. Go on. Uh, yeah, I've got a I've got a speechless right now, Jacob. Yeah, uh, I think mine is probably the least controversial. Uh, at the very bottom is an unearthly child. Um, then the sensorites, then edge of destruction, then uh, Marinus, then reign of terror, then the Daleks, and at the top is uh, Marco Polo and Aztecs, about neck and neck. All right. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's a list I can say, okay. 
Okay. Ryan's on the other hand. Oh yeah, Ryan is. Uh, wow. I mean, it's it's clearly coming from the kind of person who would spell ass with two A's. <laughs> oh god. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap this up now. Um, the people listening, tell us what your thoughts are on these stories with only emojis in the comments. Um, and uh, <laughs> don't actually do that. Tell us some words, please. And, I it, hate emojis. and if you donate, but, if you donate do twenty it. pounds, so I'll swallow this ten pound note. In, in my defense, <laughs> I like all of those stories except an unearthly child. I yeah, like all of them. But but your ranking is still wrong. So anyway. Um oh uh, yeah, tell us what your thoughts are in the in the comments below. If you want to do it in emojis, whatever. Um and I guess that about does it. Thank you guys so much for coming on to this first episode of the Celestial Podcast. Um anything you'd like to plug before we uh before we head out? Uh, I want you all in the comments to say, please can we have Dylan back so Joey can't never bring me back because I've been annoying him. <laughs> All right, I've got something. So I'm I'm working on my next audio drama. That should be out around late February. So if you want to keep updated on that, you know, maybe subscribe to my YouTube channel. Yeah. All right, uh, Jacob, anything to plug? Um, uh, the Ultimate Doctor Who marathon either is returning or has returned by the time this gets out. Uh, I also do Game of Thrones stuff. Also. Make sure you're subscribed to Joey because Exodus is coming out. And very true. I'll, 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 I'll plug that last. Uh, and I play a Nazi. Everyone plays a Nazi in we, Exodus. We all fucking play Nazis. <laughs> We're all Nazis. We're uh, all I, well, Nazis, and we live in a swastika. I don't know why I'm going with this. <laughs> okay. Anything you would like to plug, Dylan, other than your channel? Oh yeah, I'll have all, all your channels linked in the description. If anyone wants to check them out, because they're pretty cool. Um, right. I, I'd like to plug Nazi Germany. You know, uh, it wasn't a bad place. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I'd give it a five star on TripAdvisor. Hitler did other... nothing wrong. I should know because I played him. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you would like to know all the Nazis that we're playing, um, well, first off, I'm the Doctor, but I am Joachim von Ribbentrop. Uh, Jacob is uh, Hermann Göring. Dylan is Hitler's right hand man as uh, Martin Bormann, and uh, Brian, of course, is Hitler himself. Hell yeah! <laughs> so yeah, a Doctor, ranking, Doctor Who like, Exodus comes out. With a out, ranking uh, like mine, are you surprised I'm not? I, that yeah, I am. Make, make sure you listen to the end of each episode because uh, there's a kind of subplot about a gay orgy uh, going on in the in Hitler's bunker. So make sure to listen right to the end for each one, you know, just so you can hear that. <laughs> so yeah, um, that the, the release begins on January 12th. It's releasing in four weekly parts. Um, that'll either be like a week from when I release this, or slightly more than a week. Um, so be on the lookout for that. January That's 12th. Two weeks, Duff. my guy. What? No. Oh, when's this coming out? Early January. Right. Oh. Press F in the chat for Brian's brain. <laughs> <laughs> Between this and. The Battle of Ranscore Avcross <laughs> panel discussion. <laughs> the old people agenda. <laughs> the anti. Oh my god. Alright, so thank you guys all for coming on. I'll see you guys in the next episode of the Celestial Podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>